0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to abide in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Hello, my name is Paul Coulter and I'm Head of Ministry Operations with Living Leadership. This is the fourth in a five-part series exploring aspects of pastoral care. I hope to help you have confidence in how you can ensure your pastoral care is gospel-shaped. I'm bringing you ideas that I introduced in a one-off episode of the podcast in January 2020 and that are explored in more depth in our Gospel-Shaped Pastoral Care course, which runs online between March and June. In this series, we've been thinking about five M's in pastoral care, motivation, methods, means, margins, and mechanics. In the first episode, we thought about the importance of the compassion of the Father as our motivation in pastoral care. In the second episode, we looked to the example of Christ as we sought to develop loving relationships in humility and vulnerability, and that's our method of pastoral care. In the third episode, we recognize that the means of pastoral care is the work of the Spirit through us, using the gifts that he gives and in his power, and in the ministries of presence, provision, intercession, and instruction, and his work in the lives of those we care for, bringing real and lasting change as he leads them towards christ likeness
1: and In this episode,
0: our subject is the margins of pastoral care. now, as I start. I feel it's especially important in this episode to emphasize again that what I'm saying in this series is only an introduction, that the gospel-shaped pastoral care course develops these ideas much further, as well as helping you apply them to your own situation. But what I mean by the margins of pastoral care, well, I mean it in two senses. Firstly, understanding what pastoral care is and what it isn't, and therefore how it relates to other concepts. And secondly, setting wise boundaries in our practice of pastoral care. Thinking of the first of those, how pastoral care is distinguished from related concepts, I'm a little bit wary. Definitions are tricky things. If you're not careful, they can exclude people. Sometimes they do that quite deliberately and appropriately. I mean, you really want the definition of a doctor to be used specifically for people who are properly qualified. At other times, they're exclusive unintentionally and unhelpfully. For example, when words like leader or senior are used to reinforce a status quo. So if definitions are unnecessarily restrictive, they can stifle creativity or perpetuate blind spots in our understanding. Some people think pastoral care is something that only pastors or ministers or elders do. Or if they work in an environment where the term is used in their workplace, they might think it's not their responsibility because it's in someone else's job title or job description. I don't want to define pastoral care in such restrictive terms because the New Testament clearly expects every believer to be involved in care for others. But we should be careful to recognise the pastoral part of the phrase and the distinctive role of recognised shepherds of the church, which I'll touch on in episode 5 of this series. So having said that definitions can be dangerous, as well as tricky of course, some things are hard to define. At the same time, definitions can be helpful because without knowing what words mean, communication becomes unclear or even impossible. Failure to define a concept risks conflating something quite different or neglecting important ideas altogether. So in schools and increasingly in workplaces, for example, pastoral care is used to refer to activities that create a a nurturing environment in which pupils or workers are supported through personal challenges. And that's undoubtedly a welcome development in those places. But that definition of pastoral care falls short of its historical meaning. It's a phrase that originated in the church. Its use in schools is a legacy of the Christian heritage that gave birth to Western education systems. But those systems have largely departed from Christian values and so pastoral care has shifted its meaning. I don't think the church can reclaim the term for its exclusive use, but we really do need to understand what Christian pastoral care is if we're going to care faithfully for others under God in the church. Now I said in episode three that the aim of pastoral care is to help people towards maturity in Christ. And at this point some attentive listener might be saying that that sounds suspiciously close to what they think disciple making is. And I agree It shouldn't surprise you coming from an organisation like Living Leadership because our tagline is Growing Disciple-Making Leaders. We're all about disciple-making. We believe the church has been given the commission from its Lord to make disciples of all nations, as Matthew 28 records. We're thrilled with the fact that many churches in the UK and Ireland are developing a fresh commitment to that goal, driven especially by the recognition that our context here is now a mission field. And we need to make disciples. That's going to mean creativity in our mission, engaging with our culture and sharing the gospel. But the risk in a mission-focused church is that we can neglect the importance of pastoral care. We, We might think pastoral care seems kind of indulgent It absorbs vast quantities of time and effort that should really be directed outwards. Or if we've bought into a model of church that calls every believer to be a missionary in their context, actively sharing Christ with others, well, that's a noble goal, but it doesn't leave much room for the chronically needy who might never grow to a point or be strong enough to be active in much beyond their own needs or those of their family. So we need a better way to integrate pastoral care with mission. And I think disciple making is the right heading under which we can do that. Pastoral care is not separate from mission, nor is it redundant in a mission focused church. In fact, as we reach out more and more into our communities, we'll discover more and more people in need. And we may need to care for them before we can evangelize to them or rather, to do our evangelism in the context of care. And pastoral care isn't separate from disciple-making either. I suggest that pastoral care is really disciple-making orientated towards specific needs of people. Pastoral care is a response to needs, relational, spiritual, material, or emotional, in times when a person needs a bit more help and support than they might otherwise. It has the same goal as disciple-making, maturity in Christ, but it approaches people in a specific kind of relationship, as explained in episode two. So every disciple can be involved in pastoral care in some way, and every growing disciple is likely to need pastoral care at some stage. Pastoral care is part of disciple-making, and it's an expression of discipleship. Thinking in a slightly different direction then, pastoral care is not the same as disciple making, but it is an aspect of it. But in another direction, we might need to distinguish pastoral care from other ways of helping people in need, especially counselling and psychotherapy. Now, the advice we give in living leadership is that it's best not to refer to yourself as a counsellor unless you're trained in a method of counselling you work within a code of conduct and you work under supervision. That's not a legal requirement in the UK, I don't know about other countries, but it seems wise to us to avoid any confusion. So living leadership does not currently at least offer counselling. We do, however, offer pastoral care to leaders and their spouses through our staff and associates. Pastoral care will involve the use of skills that are also found in counselling especially the kind of listening we need to engage in within the ministry of presence and the way we carry out the ministry of instruction. So what makes pastoral care different from counselling is not the skills that are used so much as the kind of relationship that it entails. In episode two, we learn from Jesus' example that pastoral care involves going, knowing, showing, and growing. Four movements in a sacrificial, compassionate relationship. Now, counsellors may be compassionate, and they have a relationship with their clients, but those relationships are more formal, more structured, and also time limited. You go to a counsellor for a specified amount of time and a specified number of sessions, and those have a structure that's often missing in pastoral care pastoral relationships are indefinite, intimate and less structured. And most importantly, pastoral care has that goal of growing towards Christlikeness. It's an explicit aim of helping the person towards that end. Gospel-shaped pastoral care has a direction and it is Christ-centered, whereas most forms of counselling are non-directive and person-centered. It's important to say that this is something that also sets what we in living leadership call gospel-shaped pastoral care, apart from some approaches that are called pastoral care elsewhere. In schools and workplaces, the caregiver's role is usually just to facilitate an individual in finding their way through trouble to a place of stability and functioning. Coping is, of course, important, but it hardly describes the fullness of the Christian life described in the New Testament. And more worryingly or concerningly, the idea that caregivers help others on a journey of self-help assumes that people can find the resources they need inside themselves. Whereas the Gospel tells us that we need God. We need truth from outside ourselves that's found in the Gospel. If people are affirmed in the belief that they can help themselves, they may be left unaware of their need for God. So authentically Christian pastoral care embodies different values and has a greater goal than pastoral care in schools and workplaces usually has. A goal that is more than survival or even flourishing in individuals, but actually conformity to the likeness of Christ. So that's the margins of pastoral care in terms of its relationship to other other things, counselling and, and uh, other understandings of pastoral care in other places. What then of the other aspects of margins, the wise boundaries that we need as we engage in pastoral care? In episode one of this series, I emphasised the, the foundational importance of integrity in, in our character in pastoral care. Without those qualities of character, pastoral care will never be truly gospel-shaped. But it's not just enough for pastoral caregivers to have personal standards. It's important in addition to establish boundaries. Boundaries are described or defined simply by Harbaugh, Brennis, and Hutton as limits that allow for a safe interpersonal connection. Those limits may be set on actions, words and patterns of thought. There are some things that faithful pastoral caregivers simply will not do, some things they will not say, some thoughts they will not entertain or dwell upon. And sometimes people think that talking about margins or boundaries in this sense is a negative thing. But far from being negative, Boundaries are a positive statement about the importance of pastoral relationships and the value of people. They promote safety, transparency and consistency in pastoral practice. So boundaries shouldn't just be arbitrarily created. They need to emerge from our understanding of God and the value he places on people and relationships. Identifying and maintaining wise boundaries is actually part of worship. Boundaries don't deal with the issues that cause some pastoral relationships to become harmful to others. They don't do away with Satan's temptation or our own sinful desires or the opposition to gospel work that some people may have. But they do make it easier for temptation to be recognised, desires to be controlled, and opposition to be defended against. They're a tangible expression of the combination of innocence like doves and wisdom like snakes that Christ expects of us when we go out in his name, according to Matthew 10, verse 16. Boundaries provide protection for three things, for the receiver of care, for the giver of care, and for the church in its mission thinking of boundaries that protect receivers of care. Pastoral relationships often include a power imbalance. Perhaps always there's a power imbalance because you as the caregiver are in that moment at least stronger than the person in need. And the caregiver doesn't always realise that, especially if their own self-esteem is low. And of course, that's also the point at which they're most likely to be tempted to act inappropriately. The first duty of a caregiver is to ensure that she doesn't harm the recipient of care. But even well-intentioned people can harm others if they transgress boundaries that should be in place. So we've got to consider the three big areas of temptation that have long been recognised in ministry. Money, sex and power. We need boundaries that keep the caregiver away from any suspicion of manipulation or any temptation to abuse others in these three ways. Perhaps the most subtle of the three is power. My colleague in Living Leadership, Marcus Honeysett, has been thinking a lot recently about that issue. He's been blogging on his personal blog and I'm sure we will carry some of those posts on the Living Leadership blog too. But put positively, Boundaries promote honour for the people we care for. That includes appropriate safeguarding and confidentiality about what they tell us, whilst also recognising that sometimes because of safeguarding, there are limits to confidentiality. But a second area for boundaries are boundaries that protect the provider of care. They protect caregivers from unnecessary risk of harm or from spurious accusations of inappropriate behaviour. If you're able to say that you simply never meet alone behind closed doors with somebody of the opposite sex, you cannot be accused, or at least accusations that you've acted inappropriately can be easily dismissed. So pastoral interactions often involve openness about one's inner life, especially when you disclose something of your own experiences as a wounded healer. A compassionate response may cause the caregiver to have less emotional control than normal. And we must never think that we're beyond temptation. As Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall Boundaries for self-care are also important. That includes knowing how to rest, ensuring a regular weekly Sabbath and proper use of holidays, prioritising transparent relationships with accountability partners and especially if we're married with our spouse. But the third reason for boundaries is that we need to protect the church and its reputation. Now don't get me wrong in this, I'm not saying that our goal is to protect the church, that has led to wrong ways of behaving, covering up transgressions of boundaries that should never have happened. That's not really protecting the church's reputation. But if we stay on the right side of boundaries, we can protect the church's reputation. And we know how harmful scandals, especially concerning sexual misconduct, are to the church's reputation. We have a duty to protect the reputation of our own congregation and of the wider church because the reputation of the gospel is inextricably tied to the reputation of the church. Boundaries can help increase confidence in people that the church is a thoughtful and a wise institution that genuinely cares about people, that won't tolerate cover ups, and will work hard to reduce the risk of the devastating impact of sinful and harmful behaviour on others. By having and abiding by an agreed set of boundaries, we can set a positive example to others and create a culture of wisdom within which it's more difficult for predatory people to operate. Now, those are the reasons why we need boundaries. I haven't said too much about what boundaries specifically we should have, and I'm not going to try and spell that out in an episode like this. I will say three things, though, three basic principles. Firstly, boundaries must be clear and appropriate. They're not aiming to bind people unnecessarily, but to free them by promoting good, sensible behaviour. So they should be easily understood, easily remembered and applied, and obviously expressing wisdom. Many churches already have a set of guidelines like that in place for pastoral care just make sure that they operate. But if your church doesn't have, and even if it does, you may want to establish your own set which complements that set of guidelines. And so if you need to develop a set of boundaries, make sure you cover all the important areas and make good use of guidelines that other churches similar to your own have established. And I would say seek advice from people with experience in pastoral care. If we can help you with that, we'd love to hear from you. And I would recommend two resources that can really help. One is the document Guidelines for Good Practice in Pastoral Care, which is produced by Pastoral Care UK and available on the website of the Association of Christian Counsellors. The other one is Living Leadership's own Code of Conduct in Interpersonal Ministry, which you can request from us through the contact form on our website. And of course, if you join our gospel-shaped pastoral care course, then we'll spend time in class working on this, thinking through our own guidelines, and we'd love to help you in that way. Secondly, though, boundaries have to be combined with wisdom. Just because you've got the right boundaries in place, clearly expressed, doesn't mean that by following them you will always act wisely. You've got to exercise discernment about what is right and wrong rather than assuming that staying within the standards guarantees ethical behaviour. Sometimes you need, in particular relationships, you need to set extra limits because you know that temptation is particularly strong or a person is particularly vulnerable. And our moral duty is not simply to avoid sin, but to maximise love for God and for others. So we mustn't just ask what is forbidden, but what is the very best action that we can take for God's glory and others' good. Thirdly, boundaries should be followed with accountability. Don't just know the boundaries yourself. Have someone else, a trusted Christian accountability partner who you invite to regularly ask about your adherence to the boundaries. Normally, or often, that will be your spouse if you're married, as well as someone who is not related to you and not your spouse. If that's the case, and and that person outside should be someone who you don't have any suspicion of potential romantic feelings for, uh, ideally someone of the same sex, someone wise and experienced. And so you're accountable to others. That helps you to stay true to the standards that you've committed to. You should share with your accountability partner as soon as possible if you think you may have breached any boundaries in place or otherwise acted unwisely. So as I say, that's just some broad principles for how you set boundaries, which are part of the margins of pastoral care. But to work that out in your specific situation is going to take some individualized work that we can help you with if you join our course or if you get in touch with us. But let's pray as we come to a close. God. Help us to understand pastoral care as part of mission and a form of disciple making. We pray for those we care for to come into and grow within a living relationship with you. Give us boldness and wisdom to shape everything we do as caregivers around the gospel. May this be especially true in our setting of boundaries. We need your wisdom as we determine what limits we should set on our behaviours and thoughts. Forgive us for our past inattention to this need and help us to greater faithfulness in future. We pray this for your eternal glory. Amen. If you want to explore these issues further and to develop your heart, skills and wisdom for pastoral care, we'd love to welcome you into our gospel-shaped pastoral care course, which is delivered online on Monday mornings from March to June. To find out more and to register for the next run of the course, please visit livingleadership.org slash care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope that what we've considered today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you are encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you want to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media platform at Living Leaders or visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll also find more support and resources to help you abide in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. God bless.